Scripture reading for today, as you see up there, 1 Peter, starting with uh, chapter 1, verse 22. We'll read up to 2 Peter, verse 12. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but... For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which rage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Good morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get to work here. Father God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you, Lord God, that we can gather together in this place. We thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken to us by your word and that you've given us your commands. And we thank you, Lord God, that we're probably here because at some point in time we've tasted and seen that you are good. So I pray, Lord God, that we would be able to taste and see that you're good this morning. I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear the command of the Lord and that we would see it, Lord, as an invitation to you, to fellowship with you and to know you. So we pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would encourage our hearts and speak to us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Christian motivation 
in all things is ultimately voluntary and for the purpose of joy. Now, this is a truth that makes Christianity unique. While it is true that God has commands and laws, and he does punish those who do not keep them, Christians are more motivated by their rewards than their punishments. To make it even more succinct, Christians are ultimately motivated by knowing God himself rather than what they can get from God. Sociologist Christian Smith, he he coined this term to kind of describe the notion of God among, particularly among young people in the United States of America. He calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. And he says that this is kind of the prevailing notion of the way that people, especially young people, perceive God and their relationship to God in the USA. What does moralistic therapeutic deism teach? What is this? It essentially says that if I live a decently moral life, right, then God must in turn bless me and give me things that I want, whether it be material blessing or emotional solace. Right? That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And the Scripture has a radically different view and a profoundly different approach to God. Scripture teaches us, first of all, what we want. You know, Scripture comes to us like we're browsing for a movie. Have you guys ever browsed for a movie? Gone to the video store? I want to watch a movie. And you kind of go through the aisles. You know, we used to have video stores back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. (laughs) Now you might spend time on Netflix or whatever it is. You want to watch something, you're not quite sure what. Am I the only one who's had this experience? So you spend 15, 20 minutes, I don't know what to watch. I want something, I just don't know what. So scripture comes to it. Don't you, wouldn't you rather go to the video store when, on a recommendation? Somebody says, watch this movie. All right, I'm in and out in two minutes. That's wonderful. Scripture comes to us and tells you, I know what you want. Even though you don't even realize it, you want God. And Scripture also leads us to God as our greatest reward. God himself is the gospel. That we get God at the end is our true reward. Moralistic therapeutic deism sees God as an obligation or a hoop that you have to jump through to get what you think you really want. Scripture teaches us that God is what we really want. He's the point of life. And he's the one that we truly long for. So before we look at the commands that we're going to look at this morning, there's going to be two that we're going to look at in our passage. Um, I want us all to understand that all the commands of Scripture are grounded in tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, which Peter 
assumes that his readers have experienced. 1 Peter 2, 3. You have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the foundation for everything that he's going to command them to do. You see, when we understand that the commands come to us on the foundation of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, it totally changes the way that we relate to the commands, does it not? We no longer see commands as obligations. We see them as invitations into the heart of God. Obeying the commands, if we have tasted that the Lord is good, Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you at least had that experience at some point? I understand that it goes up and down and all over the place. But because you've tasted that the Lord is good, obeying commands is God's way for us to come to him and drink deeply of the fountain of knowing him. So with that, let's get into the commands. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, from 1.13 to chapter 2, verse 3, Peter lays out four commands. And the last time I preached a couple of weeks ago, I covered the first two of the four, which were set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed, and then second, be holy as I am holy. And then command number three is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And number four, long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for it. So this morning we're going to look at these two commands, the third and the fourth, and we're going to connect it to the spiritual house that God is making us into through Christ. Now I quickly realized that God prioritizes loving others more highly than I do. You'll notice that loving one another is the very top priority of a Christian's pursuit of holiness, right? Be holy as I'm holy. The very next command is love one another earnestly from a pure heart, which means that in the pursuit of holiness, one of the highest priorities, at least for the Apostle Peter, is that you learn to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Upon realizing this, as I said, I realize that my priorities aren't in sync exactly with God's priorities. I don't prioritize that as highly as I should. And I hope that if nothing else happens in this sermon, that maybe we will all come to realize that we should prioritize loving one another very highly. In an individualistic culture, because of sin, every culture has its obstacles. We have our obstacles. Americans are individualistic. You are individualistic. So am I. We have to remember that holiness is not merely intellectual assent to doctrine. Right? Sometimes that can be easy for us to do. It's includes transformation in how Christians treat others. It's both. It's knowledge and action. Another obstacle that we have to come over, uh, overcome is a consumerism. 
We also think consumeristically as a culture. Peter is writing to a covenant community. You are a Christian. If you believe in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a covenant community. That's hard for us to grasp because we're consumers to the core. Partly because of our sin nature, but but our culture just heaps gobs of lighter fluid on that fire and it just goes crazy. We're consumers. We think consumeristically by nature rather than covenantally. Which means that when we do have relationships, whether it be personally or with church, we tend to be in it for the way that it meets our needs or suits our preferences or gives us something that we want. Not that that's bad, but when that becomes the defining reason for why I'm in a relationship, that's consumeristic, not covenant. Now, this is a generalization, I understand, and it isn't always the case for us, but we're prone to it, and we have to understand this. When we think about loving one another, we have to understand this about ourselves, I think. The consumer mentality says, I will love you provided I get something I want in return. And when I don't get it, then I'm no longer obligated to love. I'm off the hook. You didn't meet your end of the bargain, so, oh, I'm not getting what I want out of this, so I don't have to love you anymore. Let me give you an example of how this might look. Let's take marriage, for instance. Now, you might have a couple of Christians, man and woman, um, for whom divorce is not an option. All right? Let's just make that into the uh, equation. They may not leave each other, but you know what they might do? They might fudge a little bit on how they love each other. They may not love each other the way that Christ calls them to love each other. Why? Because I'm not getting what I want from this person or I'm not getting what I expected from this relationship. So even though there may not be a separation or somebody leaving, the consumer mentality kind of creeps in even when we say, hey, you know what? They're not coming to the table with what I want, so I'm not going to come to the table either. That's consumer mentality. You see, the consumer mentality says, I will love you as long as you provide this for me. The covenant mentality says, I will love you no matter what, because God calls me to this kind of love. Those are two totally different things. We have to keep that in mind When we hear the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, we're loving them out of the basis of the command of God to love others. Not because they provide you with something or because they get you or because they understand you or because you have some kind of affinity with them. Those are all wonderful things. But you're commanded to love covenantally. Love them. Church is another interesting context. Now, to be clear, the command to love one another applies to all Christians, not just people in the local church, in this local church. 
<laughs> right? You're not just commanded to, to love people who go to Glory of Christ Fellowship on Sunday. You're commanded to love all Christians everywhere. So I don't want to exalt the local church too highly here. But I also feel like it needs to be said that many Americans are tied to their church by the consumer mentality instead of the covenant mentality. Too often, loving others is prioritized too lowly. And finding people or styles or programs or whatever it might be is prioritized too highly. Now, there's a place for all of that, but I commend it to you for consideration. And let me say this about that. If there are people in your church or wherever you are, then there are people to love that you are called to love. And guess what? That gives you every opportunity that you need to fulfill your calling to become holy. Isn't that wonderful? Because holiness, or because loving one another is such a high priority to your holiness, if there are people to love, there is holiness to be had for you. So let's dive a little bit deeper into Peter's context here. Let's understand his context just a little bit more and his situation. Now remember, he's talking to believers who are scattered about through the five Roman colonies or provinces. And you'll remember that it was likely that they were probably forced out of the city of Rome due to their Christian witness and so on and so forth. And they were forced into these colonies to kind of disperse them and so on and so forth. And um, as believers, now they are increasingly isolated from one another And Christianity is becoming increasingly vulnerable to Roman hostility and the pressure to conform to the Roman worldview, which is in opposition to God's kingdom and to God's truth. And you remember that the overall punch of the letter that Peter gives us is stand firm in the true grace of God. In this case, they're standing firm. They're standing firm means loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. And it also means longing for the Word of God, the pure spiritual milk. This is what it looks like at this point in this chapter for them to stand firm. And the grace of God that they are standing firm in is that they have been born again by the living Word of God and the imperishable seed, and that they have tasted that the Lord is good. So they're standing firm. They're called to stand firm, to love one another, to long for the Word of God. Now, the more I read this command, I want to alert you to First uh, Peter one twenty-two through twenty-five. There, the more the logic becomes or became mysterious to me, and I had to wrestle with this one. Look at this. Peter writes, "Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since." And look at how he grounds it. He provides a rationale, and at first glance, it's like, huh? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So therefore, you should love one another. 
What's the logic there? That doesn't quite make sense to me. I would expect, you know, and I would understand, he'd say, if the Word of God remains forever, you know, then I would expect him to say, so therefore study it a lot. Make it a big part of your life, right? Maybe listen to or read the Word of God more than you watch Fox News or listen to Rush Limbaugh. But the command to love one another seems a bit jarring and the logical connection perhaps isn't, lo- or isn't obvious at first. So let's try to make sense of what Peter is actually thinking here in his mind. Now first, you'll notice that it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, right? And this shouldn't be lost on us because it wasn't lost on Peter. The context of both passages are strikingly similar. He quotes from Isaiah 40. Isaiah is writing to Israel, God's people, who are displaced from their holy city, Jerusalem. Right? The Israelites lost their temple, which to them was the place God was revealing his glory to his people and through his people into the nations. And the temple was also the place that God's people were assured of God's presence with them. They had lost all of this, and now they're exiles. Peter is writing to God's people as well. And they are also displaced from their home. They were pushed out of the city of Rome. And now they are exiles. Both are writing to exiled communities who are displaced and sojourners in their respective lands. And both, this is another thing they have in common, both are being oppressed by superpowers. For the Israelites, it was the Babylonians and for the, for the believers in First Peter, they're being oppressed by the Romans, both mighty superpowers. And you'll notice in Isaiah 40, it begins, if you look at Isaiah chapter 40, it'd be interesting for you if you're looking to do a little bit more Bible study, look at Isaiah 40 and look at this passage that we're looking at today side by side, and there's so many different similarities, it's just amazing, Right? But in Isaiah chapter 40, it starts with this call to comfort. Comfort my people. Right? And Peter understands his people need comfort. His people are being oppressed. His people are exiled. He sees that Christianity is really vulnerable right now. So he realizes that his people need comfort. And you know what? We need comfort too. Think about it. In light of the decisions that were made by the Supreme Court just this week, we are more and more, I think, Christians who aspire or subscribe to God's wisdom and God's law about gender and marriage. We find ourselves more and more at odds with the growing power of people that are opposed to God's rule. We might be witnessing in our day the emergence of our own modern-day Rome or Babylon. With the decision that was made this week in the Supreme Court, think about what is the, the, the significance of that. Sin is now being celebrated in our land. It is being institutionalized in our land. Christians, you might be wondering or worried about what the implications of this might be throughout our days going forward. Peter's readers needed 
comfort. We need comfort in the midst of being Christians in a land that we find ourselves more and more the, the minority against a growing power that is opposed to God's rule. Now, this is what Peter encourages his readers with. There's a couple of things. He says that the reality of the superpowers that are dominating them are as good as withering grass. Right? And their glory is fading. Like a fading flower. Any superpower that is in opposition to God's kingdom is temporary at best. And the people of God, on the other hand imperishable. God's people are commanded to love one another. Why? Because they find themselves on the continuum of eternity. And your eternity, if you are in Christ, will be marked by being God's people who love one another. He's saying, you know what? The world that you find yourself in The powers that be are so strong and mighty, it's a fading flower. You, on the other hand, are imperishable. You will last forever. And you know what you will last forever doing? Loving each other. That's the logic here. So therefore, love one another. Because you are defined by eternity. You are born of imperishable seed. You will do this forever and ever and ever. Therefore, start now. This is who you are. You are not a fading flower. You will continue to grow into eternity. This is why Peter calls his people, put away malice. Put it away. Put away deceit, hypocrisy, and slander. Now, we talked about the superpowers of Babylon and Rome, but there is a third superpower in the equation here that Peter, I think, is primarily concerned with. He's talking about the superpower of sin. And Peter deals with it. This is how he deals with it. Notice this. He deals with it by teaching his people that sin is part of a past empire that will wither and fade away. In fact, sin is a superpower that has already been utterly defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is currently, if you are in Christ, a crumbled dynasty. Because you are a new creation, you are born again by the imperishable seed of God's word. So therefore, the perishable has no mastery over you. And it has no place in you. You are an imperishable kingdom. Sin is part of a perishable dynasty that has faded and crumbled. So not only does he say, logically, this doesn't fit, he says, this is also the power that you have for putting these things away. It has been defeated. The only thing left is ruins. Put it away. Therefore, since the superpower of sin has come crumbling down in you, don't treat others according to its rule any longer. Don't do it. Don't you see this is a defeated dynasty? It's over. So put it away once and for all. 
continue to put it away. Well, I understand that it won't be totally put away until Christ returns. But so far as it depends upon you, put it away. Stop with the malice. Put that away. The ill intent that you might have. I'll say something about social media. Don't spread malice on social media, right? Don't talk bad about people. Don't even talk bad about unbelievers in a malice kind of way. Stop lying and deceiving others. Put put that away. That's part of the old kingdom. Hypocrisy is interesting. When you look at some of the meanings of the word, simulation. Stop simulating Christianity. Don't be a Christian simulation. Don't make it look like you have it all together, and really you don't. Don't make Christianity into some kind of game as if you have to convince others that you have it all together. That's hypocrisy. Put that away. Stop with the envy. The accusing of God. That it's not fair that they have what I want and I don't have that. And Stop slandering. Put slander and gossip away. Slander is gossip. It happens all the time. It is a cancer in the kingdom of God. Not to mention a red carpet invitation for the devil to enter in and destroy, divide, and devour you. Put that away. All of these things are fading flowers, part of a regime that has already been defeated. None of these have a place in God's imperishable kingdom, which you were born into and born by. Now, our human proclivity, I'll say this kind of as a side thought here, this doesn't exactly fit right here, but our human proclivity, is it not, is to think that other people are the problem. Right? I could be a loving person if, you know, you weren't so hard to love. So our human proclivity is other people are the problem. Peter says, no, 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 no. You. Sin is a part of you. And the problem is you're not loving other people. The solution, though, the good news, is that you should love other people. Right? Stop making the problem out there. Start realizing that the problem is in here. Love other people. Because this is what you were created to do from the beginning, and it will be what identifies you into eternity. So, second command, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Now, this is the second command that Peter gives. Um, Long for the pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God. Now, this logic here, compared to the other one, seems much more straightforward. Since you are born of the Word, and the Word is outfitting you for eternity in God's kingdom, continue to be nourished by the Word. Right? That's the logic. Peter uses the example of an infant. Right? And in this case, the infant is someone that we should aspire to become like. 
You see, Peter isn't saying, you guys are so immature, you're like a baby. No. He's actually saying, if you would only become like a baby, you would be so much more mature. That's what he's saying. Become like a baby. A baby is exemplary. How is a baby exemplary in this situation? A baby is exemplary in the way that it longs for what it truly needs and what it truly gives it life, right? Spiritually speaking, God's Word is the milk that gives us life. And if we will love from a pure heart, we need to grow up on the nourishment of the pure spiritual milk, right? We are unlike babies. You know why we're unlike babies in one key way? Because we've tasted so many other things out there, we don't oftentimes desire what we should really desire, what we truly need. And in this way, we can take a lesson from the infant. The infant cries for one thing only, milk. And that's the one thing it needs. Be like that infant. You need God's word. Cry for it like a baby. Know that this is your one main need. Long for it. I know this is a hard command because, you, because it's a command to say you should want this. That's hard to command. We're talking about wanting something. So I'll say this. Pray that you will long for the milk of the word. Pray that you will crave it. Establish patterns in faith that you will again crave it. Create patterns of what it would look like of somebody who craves the Word of God and do that in faith that God would eventually continue to build up your longing for the Word of God. You have tasted it once. You know that it is good, so therefore crave it. Don't buy into a spiritual fatalism. Do you know what spiritual fatalism is? It's saying, oh, I'm not really the Word of God. I'm not the reader type, so on and so forth. I'm never going to long for it. You pastors up there, you guys get all excited about the Word and so on and so forth. I'll never be like you. The reality is, that's fatalism. This is a command that we're talking about. The Bible commands this. It's not negotiable. It doesn't command that your longing will look like another person's longing, but it does command you to long for it. The Bible commands that you long for the Word of God. So therefore, we trust that because God commands it, that it is possible for you. And secondly, that it is good for you and necessary for you. So pray about that. Pray that you will long for the Word of God. Because this is God's command. Now this command also clarifies the Uh, the particular meaning of love that Peter has in mind here. Now, the word love, you guys would probably agree, seems to mean everything in our day, right? So, because it means so many things, it's in danger of meaning nothing. What does this mean, love? It's so nebulous. Well, I think in this case, um, I think Peter means that the particular kind of love that he has in mind is growing up into salvation. Longing for the word, tasting that the Lord is good, and growing up into salvation. This is what Peter has in mind when he talks about loving people. Now, if you think my holiness is only connected to me, it's a personal thing between me and God, it doesn't really affect other people, well, maybe a little bit. Think again about that. 
your personal holiness matters a whole lot to all the people around you. Again, we think covenantally about this. So your growth in Christ and your taste of Christ and your desire for Christ is going to affect the community around you. So your growth and your progress in holiness and your growing up into salvation is the practical way that you will love people. Isn't that amazing? Peter doesn't give his people a five-step plan to loving other people. He simply says, long for God's word, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Grow up into salvation. And as you experience God, who is perfect in love, you will learn to love other people by becoming like him. I love that. It's so unbelievably unpragmatic. (laughs) So last, let me close with this idea of the spiritual house. Let me connect all the dots here for us. Let me do my best to connect this into what it means for the spiritual house. There's another comfort here that Peter provides his people. So the spiritual house that Peter has in mind in chapter 2 verse 5 undergirds our pursuit of holiness. Now I already talked about the temple and the function that it played. Peter has the Old Testament temple in mind. What was the Old Testament temple? Well it was a place where God's glory was manifested to his people and through his people. It was a place where people went to communicate with God where the priests entered once a year into the Holy of Holies, only a select few in the nation of Israel. It was a place where the people of God were assured that God's presence was dwelling among them. It was a place where they went to meet God, right? This is what Peter has in mind here when he's talking about believers becoming this spiritual house. He's talking about this is the place where God's glory is going to be manifested. This is the place where God's dwelling is going to take root in this earth. He's saying that this is the place where God will reveal himself to the nations and to you. Now through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all those who believe in Christ are now a priesthood. If you are a believer, you are a priesthood. You have access into the Holy of Holies. You can fellowship with the living God. But the way that you treat others and the way that you love others is very important to the building project of this house. You remember when uh, Jesus was talking to the Jews. And what does he say to them about the temple? He says, tear it down. And what? In three days, I'm going to rebuild it. (laughs) Of course, they laugh at him and they say, you're crazy. It took us 46 years to build this thing. Jesus wasn't talking about putting stones on top of each other. He wasn't talking about a physical building anymore. He was talking about a people that he would die and rise again for to make uh, the people of God so that they would be transformed into the likeness of God. And as those people, Jesus is the cornerstone, the one that's rejected, as those people put their faith in Jesus, they start to be fit into Christ and they become the dwelling place of the living God. Now I wanted to alert your, your attention back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse five, 4 and 5. I'll read it if you don't want to turn there. Every valley shall be lifted up. And again, I'm reading this because there's so many connections from Isaiah. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is what the promise that Isaiah is giving to his exiled people. 
Isaiah comforts his people with the promise that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and that every possible barrier to this will be removed. And now this is the, way, the same way that Peter comforts his people. Here's another level of comfort that Peter offers his people. You see, he does promise. We kind of think of, okay, well, if Peter was really going to comfort his people, he would comfort them by saying, you know what? You don't have to face any opposition, no persecution. I'm going to crush the Romans. Boom. Wouldn't that be comforting? Peter doesn't do that, does he? He does promise that on the day of visitation that all those who are in opposition to Christ will face judgment. So at the end of time, God is going to deal with those who are in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. But what about right now? There's no trace of a promise that says, hey, you know what? You don't have to worry about opposition. You don't have to worry about persecution. You don't have to, be, you don't have to worry about getting slandered. You don't have to worry about getting maligned. He actually promises that. He says, you're going to face that. So what kind of comfort does Peter give in the present? And this is what he says. I think what he says is, you will become a spiritual house when you love each other. When you grow in holiness, you will become the place where God dwells, where God will manifest his glory, where God will display his power, where you will experience God. You see, for a believer who loves God, for, for a believer who has tasted that the Lord is good, the practical outworking of that is loving other people. If you love God, you know how you love God and you've tasted that he's good? The practical way that that works itself out is by loving other people. And by so doing, by so becoming more and more like the character of God, God is more and more pleased to indwell his temple, his people, so that his glory will be made known so that his presence will dwell in the midst of your gathering as you love other people. That's the comfort and that's the hope. You see, Peter doesn't remove the reality of suffering. Peter says, God will be glorified in and through you as you become like him. That's the hope that he gives them. Is that enough for you? Is that have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Because if you have tasted that God is good, I think it will be enough for you to know that God will be glorified no matter how much opposition comes our way. God will make himself known through this spiritual house. And it also goes to highlight just how important it is that believers love each other, does it not? Because you are being fit to be the temple in which God is making his dwelling. Don't you understand that the glory of God is being revealed to you and through you unto the nations? Therefore, put away all of this garbage that is from the past empire of sin. If you understand this, you will put this away. You will understand how significant, how utterly crucial it is that you love one another earnestly from a pure heart. For those of you who have tasted that the Lord is good, the promise of knowing God by loving one another is all we need. Is it enough for you that 
when you become holy, that God will indwell his temple to know God. If you had your choice, remove suffering or remove opposition or remove the presence of God, which would you choose? If you've tasted that the Lord is good, you'll say, don't take God away from me. I want to experience his closeness. I want him to indwell his temple. I want to taste that he is good. And Peter says, you can have that. You will have that when you love one another. When you grow up into salvation. So let me close with just reading verses 2-9 to the end. You are a chosen race. This is your new identity. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, beloved, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it may grow up into salvation. And take delight in your new identity, the spiritual house that God is building you into, that his glory may be made known to you and through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We pray that you would do with it as you please. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.